This is the Seventh Art uh, Cinema Podcast. I'm Brian Robertson. I'm Pat Mindy. We're two producers on the Seventh Art. Um, Christopher Heron is the host and also another producer. He's not here at the moment. Um, you got a text? Yeah, you I just got, got a text. I uh, just got called the flakiest. Yeah. Friend, I missed a party I last see week. That. Uh, so Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> is our... Uh, Subject for this week's uh, podcast. Yeah, this, this we were lucky to get Peter. He was in town, um, right? And Peter was one that uh, when we were kind of deciding whether or not to even attempt uh, contacting him, we thought it was completely impossible. Was Peter no was chance. the first one. Yeah, I mean, at this point, we had only talked to Toronto filmmakers, which was sort of the idea. Right, the was beginning. he our first American? As yeah, well. yeah, yeah. He was our first American. Peter was our first American. Or he, non-Canadian. He had um, the last picture show screening at the at the light box right so Turner Classic Movies was bringing him yeah. for the uh, they were taking that on tour right. and uh, yeah we didn't expect to get him we got him it was our first interview where we really pulled out all the stops did we pay for a limo Bogdanovich yeah no it wasn't a limo it was like an airport it was like a town taxi. car taxi town car yeah it was yeah. a step down yeah it was a town car but it was car, nice but uh we had a makeup artist on set uh, well they asked so they asked us to have a makeup artist on set his and people, I was worried, yeah. So we, we scrambled and, and got um, Joe. What was his name? Joe Primo. Yeah, Joe Primo, who's also like great. Joe Primo was really great. He showed up, he was super pro. Um, had this whole kit. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, had a, he brought a huge kit. He was ready. Bogdanovich showed up, did not want that makeup. As soon as he yeah, he was like, no, do I have to? Like, Absolutely. Do I, no, do I have to do it? And we were more than happy to say no. I didn't yeah. want to be putting. putting like yeah. concealer on Peter Bogdanovich's <laughs> face. But anyways, um, so it was really cool. We shot the interview at Unit Bar on Queen Street, which is Queen and Gladstone. Um, they're super nice. The bar's really, really nice. If you're in the area, check in with them because um, it's just a, like a really nice atmosphere. Right. A little tight, but it was cool. Um, it was the first time that we... Uh, what? We had a light that exploded halfway through the interview. Well, yeah, this was back when we used to light our interviews. Right, so, right. Yeah. We had uh, Clifford. Chris Clifford was a DP who was working with yeah. us. He came on and was adamant in setting up lights. Always lighting up. Every Smart, day. though. Yeah, it, it was good. good. It looked good. He did a really good job with it. But we learned really quickly that we sort of don't have the, the manpower. manpower and time, really. Like, yeah. you know, you're asking these, these bartenders if we can come in for an hour and a half before we shoot an interview and they're just sort of standing around and right um, so anyway Bogdanovich if you want to watch uh, this interview I well if anyone who website. first of all I don't know if anyone who doesn't know Bogdanovich he's a legend legendary American director right and Bogdanovich started out interviewing uh, Howard Hawks and, right uh, yeah yeah he's, he John has Ford. a really famous book where he interviewed we just a compilation of his conversations with Orson Welles right. uh, one of my favorite films of all time actually Paper Moon is a Bogdanovich film um, with Ryan O'Neill um, and his daughter, uh, another, it's a great film. Right, and so uh, for this interview, Chris, I think, tried to focus on the lesser-known uh, Bogdanovich. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So there's, very, uh, I think, the very little talk about Last Picture Show. It's more uh, Texasville, the sequel to Last Picture Show, yeah. and uh, thing called Love. Yeah, what was the made-for-TV film with, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, let me see. <clears throat> Says, oh, St. Jack. Oh, Noise is Off. Yeah, yeah it's St. Jack. Right, right, right. Oh, shit. Oh, so that's the beginning of the track. Uh, so it's he's um he told some amazing stories. T- time with Cassavetes. Uh, yeah, great Cassavetes uh, stories. River Phoenix. Yeah, like he's just, you know, I think also people who know Peter, he's 
a great storyteller. So it was just nice to sit yeah, down and just listen to him. All right. Yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy, Peter Bogdanovich. I guess we'll start with what brought you here. Well, I've been a fan of Turner Classic Movies because they, they, they do a great service showing older films. And uh, I went to their first film festival, I guess it was last year. I introduced a few films for them. And I've done the essentials for them once or twice. So I did a whole year of essentials. So I've done a few things for TCM. We sort of, they, they consider me part of the family. I like them. They like me. They asked me if I'd do this. I said, sure. Well, I think it's interesting because the, the way that the channel operates is almost kind of what you were doing at the start of your career, which is exposing people to underseen films and directors. Yeah, it's true. It's, it, do you think that it, it kind of conveys the sense of the auteur theory? <clears throat> the auteur theory is much misunderstood. Oh, yeah. It wasn't a theory. The French called it la politique des auteurs. It was a political statement. They said the old movies are shit and the new movies are good. Cinema du Papa? Cinema du Papa is <laughs> But the, the main thing that they were good at was uh, in discovering the personality of various directors who worked at the height of the studio system. So people like Hitchcock and Hawks, who were thought to be just entertainers, who were considered to be artists by the French when they saw that they were very personal filmmakers and they brought their personality and their personal Sessions to their work, so it was it was it was finding the personal touch in the studio system, which what they were doing. When you wrote your monographs for for MoMA, those those early ones about Hitchcock, um, Wells, Hawks Wells, and yeah. Hitchcock, and I guess Lang was later. No, Lang, yeah, that was a book. Yeah, were were those um, kind of radical in the way that they were all about one author, or was that something that came? like one filmmaker. Or they were radical in the sense that they were the first retrospectives in the United States of all three of those directors. Yeah. Um, Hitchcock was in his 60s and so was Hawks and they never had a retrospective in the yeah. United States. So it was uh, unusual for that matter. And uh, Wells had never had a retrospective either. So it was the first of, the, first of its kind and it was in New York so it had an impact. And what was the relationship with Andrew Saris around that time? Well, Andy and I were friends. We hung out in the end of the 50s, early 60s. <clears throat> he, and, uh, he and Eugene Archer, who was the third or fourth string critic for the New York Times, um, who was the secret auteur, auteurist, <laughs> secret auteurist. Uh, <clears throat> we used to hang out and talk about movies into the wee hours. Yeah. Well, I guess what always interests me is someone who's very deeply passionate about cinema. I wouldn't say a critic, but someone that watched a lot of films. Yeah. Um, when you start making films, and especially when you've made a, a fair amount, do you start to consider your own work in that? Do you have that detached where you can maybe look at recurrent oh, themes? I or I, I, no, I don't do that. Yeah? I try not to. I try to avoid that sort of speculation because I don't, I don't want to become self-conscious. Oh, this is one of my obsessions. Yeah. I don't want to get <laughs> Well, I was, I was expecting I purposely that. don't think that way yeah. with my own stuff. Well, I, I guess what that leads me to is the thought of how people in receiving your films have often kind of wanted to push a certain type to each one, like, oh, this is a musical in the vein of 
Yeah, so the, 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 the standard Bogdanovich review, yeah. this is his homage to this. Blank, yeah. This is his homage to that. <laughs> Paper Moon was supposed to be my homage to Shirley Temple. It's the anti-Shirley <laughs> Temple movie. It's absolutely the, 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 the contrary of Shirley Temple. So it, anything but Shirley Temple, certainly that wasn't the thing. But they say, you know, that long shot, that's his homage to Ford. Well, Ford was great at long shots, it's true, but he didn't invent it. Yeah. Griffith was pretty good at long shots, too. The idea is that I learned the grammar and vocabulary of movies from looking at a lot of them yeah. and from talking to some of the best directors around. <clears throat> I, I think What's Up Doc was stolen from Bringing Up Baby. It wasn't an homage. We stole the basic plot. I told that to Hawks. I said, I'm stealing the, stealing some stuff from bringing a baby. He said, that's all right. He always <laughs> used to tell me he'd steal everything. So, so I'm stealing from you. All right, that's fine. So I sent him the script. He called me up. Well, you didn't steal the dinosaur. <laughs> well, I can't steal the dinosaur, Howard. It's too much identified as bringing a baby. Yeah, I guess not. Well, you didn't steal the leopard. <laughs> well, I couldn't steal the leopard, Howard. I, mean, that's, I guess not. Well, who have you got in it? Well, Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. I mean, I know they're not carrying Grant and Catherine Hepburn. You're damn right they are. <laughs> well, don't let them be cute. Okay, Howard. All right, boy. <laughs> don't let them be cute. He was very proud of the fact that that picture was a hit. Bringing a Baby wasn't a successful picture in its day. Yeah. I don't know why, but it wasn't. Uh, it, it, it performed well in some markets and not well in other markets. It was very spotty. But he was, but I told everybody that I had ripped off bringing up baby, so Howard was thrilled that it was a hit because he could take a few bows for it. Yeah. He went down to Rio to, for some kind of tribute and they, he took pictures with his own camera of the marquee of the various theaters that had What's Up Doc was playing. So yeah. It was very sweet of him. Well, it's almost like a running uh, theme with the, the, the filmmakers you wrote more on or, dis or interviewed more, is that there was kind of a lack of reception um, for their great, what would later become, especially their great films. Yeah. Well, that's true, you know. You look at a, a year like 1959, which is, had Rio Bravo, Anatomy of a Murder, North by Northwest, and they gave the award, the Oscar, to Ben-Hur. One of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> I wrote a review of Ben-Hur. My review ran like this. The chariot race starts at, and I listed the starting time of the chariot race. That was my whole review. <laughs> it wasn't very nice. It was, it, there was a similar reaction to Lawrence of Arabia, I guess, too. I remember reading those review, the review you gave and, and uh, Andrew Sarris gave. Back then, there would be like the kind of designation of fair, good, et cetera. Oh, yes. The, yeah. I didn't like Lawrence of Arabia. First of all, I didn't even know at the time that it was deeply inaccurate. Yeah. I didn't know that. I just didn't like the picture. I thought it was boring and long and boring. And uh, it irritated me. I saw it with a big audience. And that shot of Omar in the distance, the famous shot, big deal <laughs> shot, done, everybody applauded. And I thought, if you applaud a shot, you're not in it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and the story, the, the real story, is much more interesting than the movie. <clears throat> Peter O'Toole was great, however. I loved, loved him. I, I've noticed that you, 
as your films, have you, as you've made more and more films, the kind of there's always a strong sense of craftsmanship, but it's not like an insistent style. It kind of like that shot you say, like takes someone out of it because they notice it's a shot. Is that a, a conscious effort? Well, I'm trying to tell a story, not make a great shot. You know, <clears throat> if um, I don't think audiences should be aware of technique or what how you do it. It's like taking him backstage with a magic act. It's, it's nobody's business how it's done, you know. Um, no, I don't like, I don't like to show off kind of technique. No, I've avoided that as much as possible. The film is filled with beautiful compositions though, and, and I find people often remark upon Paper Moon or Last Picture Show, but I think especially films like St. Jack or um, Texasville have, have great great camera work and I'm wondering what your relationship has been with different cinematographers over the year like Robbie Mueller or well I, I pretty much call the shot yeah I mean I, I'll say what I, where I want the camera and usually will indicate the, the lens yeah once I learned about lenses which took me a while um, but I got some very good tips from Orson about lenses and uh, Hitchcock as well so I usually say where the camera's going to go, what the camera's going to do, and so on. And then, uh, of course, I leave the lighting up to the camera director of photography. But I mean, I say what kind of mood I want, and he does it. I don't, I don't know about lighting, except that if I don't like it. <laughs> um, so my relationship with, with the directors of photography is uh, very close. We work closely. Here's what I'd like. Here's what I'd like to do. What do you think? So it's not like I'm dictatorial yeah. but I have a pretty good idea of what I want to do and as far as composition is concerned you know I grew up with my father was a painter and, and so and we didn't have a lot of money so he his studio was at the apartment yeah. so I mean I grew up with compositions every, from the moment I opened my eyes so I just always was thinking in those terms I suppose when I look through the lens I look through the lens to pick the shot Find the, find the shot and so on. You know. I've been fortunate to have some very good cameramen. I did about five or six pictures with Laszlo Kovacs. Yeah. He was good. He was great. Great fun to work with. And the two with Robbie Mueller was brilliant. Those are great. Yeah, St. Jack and they all laughed. And um, then I had a very, very fine Italian cameraman, Alberto Spagnoli, who died very young. He did Daisy Miller with me. He was amazing. Everything's sharp, you know? <laughs> Alberto. Everything sharp. See, see, sharp, sharp. Everything. Tutto, tutto. Yes, And I knew it couldn't, was not possible that it would be all sharp. But then I saw the data as it was. I said, how did you do that? He said, well, I mean, you're here for the last picture show, but Texasville, to my mind, is just an incredible work. Well, thank you. Did you see the director's cut of that? No, I haven't. I've seen the scenes separate, like outside of yeah, the actual... YouTube. Yeah, Well, I'm trying to get MGM to put out they're, they're not in a very good financial situation in Texasville. The sad thing about Texasville was that it was a very risky proposition to do it. I didn't really want to do it because I thought Picture Show was such a big deal and it was so highly thought of. And it was, a, and it was about coming of age and, and about kids and so on. And it was sort of funny and sad at the same time, so tragic and comic. Texasville was about middle-aged angst, which by its nature is funny. 
it's not really funny when you're going through it, but it's funny to, to, to photograph. So I just, it wasn't, you know, when people say it's a sequel or a remake, well, a sequel, uh, it, they basically want you to make the same film over again with a slightly different plot or something. Uh, but this was a completely different movie. At that point, when the picture was about to open, there was no home video of the last picture show. You couldn't see it. Yeah. So I had made a deal with the um, guy who was the head of Columbia at that time <coughs> to do a director's cut of picture show and bring that out in theaters ahead of Texasville. And, and so we made the picture with the assumption that picture show would be shown in theaters before Texasville came out mm -hmm. or at the same time. So. Well, then there was a change of management, and the guy who came in, who shall be nameless, I wish he were nameless, but <laughs> he was an absolute monster. And he didn't like me for a variety of reasons, some justified uh, and others not, but um, he, he, uh, he just said, you can't do that. We're not going to show picture show. He says, that's cheating. Cheating. That's a stupid remark. <laughs> but because of that, I had to cut large sections of Texasville out because yeah. they, weren't, they wouldn't make sense unless you'd seen Picture Show recently. So unfortunately, 25 Minutes was cut out. It was a much better film at the, at the, at the full length. Yeah. There are people who like the film even in the shorter version. I don't like it as much. Um, I think it might have been uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum that, that gave it a really good review that, that remarked upon how it's interesting that people are looking for a kind of nostalgia in the film that's not there yeah. and that's kind of the issue and that kind of plays out in the story of course with JC being part of the past and Carlo wanting to know about the past and JC want, wanting to know about what's happening currently yeah. but the, the comment uh, Jonathan made was that these films even when they're about something in the past still seem to say so much the present and I think that, that applies equally to St. Jack and, and even uh, the thing called love. They're, they're films that all to some extent are one foot in the past and one definitely in the present. Well that's me. <laughs> one foot in the past, one foot in the present. I'm doing a, I'm doing a, um, book right now based on a diary I kept from 1965, middle of 65 to the middle of 71, which is right the period where I started to make films. So it's an interesting, interesting diary. Uh, and I'm commenting on it as I go along from, the con from a contemporary viewpoint. Okay. So it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a long book. It's just endless. I don't know. I'm just going to keep going until I finish it and then <laughs> they can cut it to shreds. <laughs> Uh, but in this book, I notice that I'm, I make a point of the fact that I'm one foot in the old Hollywood and one foot in the new Hollywood. My old, the old Hollywood was all the people I knew, yeah. whether it was John Ford or uh, Hitchcock or Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart. It was all the old Hollywood that I was hanging out with and enjoying most, Howard Hawks. The new Hollywood didn't interest me at all, but I was part of it. I had no interest in hanging out with the new Hollywood. I didn't give a shit about that. <laughs> and this diary makes it very clear because I'm talking about making a new film, two films, three films, whatever they are. And 
The Wild Angels, arguably, was the first sort of off-Hollywood counterculture movie, and I worked on it. Yeah. And that came out in 66. And it certainly was not the kind of film that Howard Hawks or John Ford would have made in a million years. And I was writing it and doing the second unit and so on and so forth. So I became more aware of the fact that that's the way I was living. Mm -hmm. Now, doing the diary, doing the book, than I was at the time. Because I think when there's a big shift in history, you're not so much aware of it when it's happening. You sort of say, oh yeah, it's normal. Because it's normal to happen. You don't, you don't question events when they're happening. I don't. Maybe I'm dense. But um, anyway. But films like The Thing Called Love, um, which I liked very much, and again, it was just not distributed, uh, or Texasville. You mentioned another one. St. Jack. Jack. St. Jack's a picture I like very much. Ben Gazzara and I worked very hard on that one, and uh, it was a major, major experience. I, I, I love that I've read two quotes about the film, like related to the film, and one is Ben Gazzara saying that he wanted to make a film where all of the scenes that wouldn't be in other films made up the entire film. And the other was Howard Hawks saying um, there are certain scenes that the audiences want, and when they don't get them, they love it. Yeah. No, he said, he said there are certain scenes that an audience knows it's going to get. Yeah. When you withhold it. And when you don't give it to them, they're so happy. <laughs> On St. Jack, Ben and I discussed it. Ben was very much involved in the writing of it. We, we agreed, let's not have any scene that you would normally have in a picture. Let's just not have those scenes. So when we, whenever we got to a scene like, well, this is a scene like you've seen this scene, let's not do it. <laughs> in fact, the big last scene in the picture uh, was a four and a half page scene between Benny's character and mine in which we basically discuss what the picture, we sort of give the point of the picture, yeah. which is that you know, there is certain, you can sink to a certain level, but not lower. And there's a, such a thing that's called integrity, and maybe it's not worth anything, but it's worth something to him, so on and so forth. So it was a, the night before we're supposed to shoot this scene, we're in the hotel and we're reading the scene, and Ben says, we read the scene and Ben says, I think this is one of those scenes that we don't need that we don't want to give them. We're explaining everything. I said, I know, it's terrible. It's a terrible scene. It was fun to act, but it was a terrible scene. So um, it was just too on the nose. So Ben says, well, what are we doing? We're saying, fuck it, aren't we? I said, that's it. You just say, fuck it, and that'd be the end of the picture. OK. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of the picture. I like that. That's a, a great period of films in your career, but it seems like all of them, for one reason or another, had difficulties with distribution or marketing? Yes, I've had more films destroyed or at least uh, their impact has been reduced to nothing because that the public couldn't see them. Yeah. Texasville is one, but uh, Thing Called Love, Tank Jack, uh, Noises Off, uh, all of them were, I think were, could have been much more popular films if they'd been able to reach the public. Do you think that with the DVD and the opportunity for some of them where you've been able to do director's cuts, um, Nickelodeon being a big one? Yeah, that was a big one. It took me years to get that right. Is, is that kind of... It's helpful yeah. because if somebody wants to see what I had in mind, they can see it. Mask took me 20 years to get that right. Yeah. 
That was a funny story because I had, there were eight minutes, the two mm -hmm. sequences, the total eight minutes that had been cut out and all the Springsteen music. So yeah. after 20 years, I called Bruce and I said, isn't there anything we can do and help me with the music on this so we can get them to put out the, my cut? He said, tell them they can have it for nothing. So I called um, Ron Meyer and I, at Universal and I said, look, I want to do this. He says, Peter, don't bring it up again. I said, we can get the music for nothing. Springsteen, eight songs, free. Oh, all right, write me a letter. <laughs> and pretty soon we had it. And then I said, well, I want to put eight minutes back. And they said, well, we don't have any outtakes. We junked all that years ago. I said, well, I've got the eight minutes. Where'd you get it? I said, I stole it. <laughs> stole it from you. Aren't you glad I stole it? Yes, we're glad you stole it. Good. So I gave him the, now what was amazing was that the eight minutes was a positive film. It was, it was, it was, it was not negative, it was the positive mm. two sequences. And uh, they spent $150,000 restoring them and, I swear, and they put it back into the negative and I swear if you see it, you can't tell the difference. Yeah. They did a great job with it. I'm very happy with that. So that picture now is the way I meant it to be. And Nickelodeon's close to the way I meant it to be. This is in black and white. Yeah. Which was good. Well, I think it's contributed to a kind of renaissance for a lot of those films, or at least a, a new appreciation for them. Yes, the most amazing one is at Long Last Love. Now, you don't know about that because it just happened. But they, they called me, and somebody called me and said, you know, at Long Last Love is on uh, YouTube, I think it was, hmm. um, in 10 minute, in two, ten minute <laughs> yeah, sections. Yeah, that sounds like YouTube. <laughs> so I looked at it, and I I sort of flashed through it, and it was in a hurry, and I said, well, where the hell did they get that scene? I cut that out. And then another scene, well, where did they get that? I, I, that's out of the picture. So I forgot about it for a I just thought, when did they find it? <laughs> and then somebody called me and says, Netflix is streaming at Long Last Love. In, you know, the whole thing. So I looked at it. It was a version that I didn't have anything to do with, <laughs> except that it was very close to the original preview cut. It was very close to the script I wrote, but I screwed up the picture in, in the theatrical version because I was badgered and rushed. And the version that opened in theaters, which got killed, really wasn't a good version at all, I came to understand. Then I made another version for television, and, and for years people would come up to me and say, why did that picture get such bad reviews? I saw it on television, it's good. Well, that's not the version that was released. I didn't know that what they were referring to wasn't that version that I had cut, but rather this one <laughs> had been cut by the 20th Century Fox editorial department. A guy there named Jim Blakely, who died a couple of years ago, was a big uh, a Cole Porter fan and loved musicals. And I, now piecing it together, he looked at it when we first made it and said, this is a good picture. Then we slowly ruined the picture. <laughs> And he said, the hell with this, and he put it back. So from about 1978 or 79, that version that he did, which I didn't see until a month or two ago, was playing all over the place. And I didn't know it. <laughs> he would say, it's a good movie. Why did it? Well, it's a different cut. It was really a different cut. It was my preview cut. Mm -hmm. So Fox, so we had a screening at Temecula, and they gave me an award down there. Uh, when you get older, they give you awards everywhere. Uh, 
probably for surviving. <laughs> or maybe for going to Temecula. <laughs> we screened it at Temecula and for 300 people and they loved it. Mm -hmm. Now you don't understand, this was a picture that was loathed. So I went to Fox and I said, can we put this out on DVD? And they said, yes, because we had a screening at Fox and people loved it. Yeah. So this is a movie that Sybil and I, Sybil Shepherd and I, really loved. And then it was so destroyed and mutilated and so hated that we, you know, we sort of just wanted, didn't want to talk about it. And now it's like having a child that's been mutilated come back to you whole. It's great. And when I look at it now, I say, how the hell did we do this picture? There's a guy named Joe Baltake, who has a blog on the internet. He has a very long, 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 like eight or nine, 20 page blog on At Long Last Love. He says there are eight versions. <laughs> I only know about four. <laughs> but anyway, so now it's coming out in September. They're putting it on DVD. No, it's great. So we'll see. Well, it's good that this is happening now because, I mean, with someone like Wells, all of this is happening after the fact where you, you have to like kind of piece together yeah. the intentions of someone who's no longer there to say them. Is there, um, are you still involved with the other side of the wind? That Oh, God, yes. I think that will <laughs> haunt me to my grave. <laughs> um, yes, we, we're, we're, we've been on the verge of completing that film for 10 years. Yeah. And I don't. I can't say we're much closer at the moment. Right now, there's an impasse. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen. One thing I wanted to ask you about is is the staging in your films. The blocking it, it's so complex, and it seems like that's something that's disappearing from a lot of films that exist now. That kind of in the camera editing, so to speak. Cutting in the camera. Yeah. Even just like blocking, like there's the the movements of characters when, especially when they're having disputes in your films, is just so captivating and real at the same time, but it seems like that's being streamlined to the point where it just doesn't exist anymore. Well, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion that when you do a scene without a cut, it happened. Yeah. There it is. He shot it. We recorded it. It's there. It's a documentary of that moment. Yeah. It maybe lasts three minutes, but it really, what happened? They walked down the street, they did that, they actually did that, they ran back, it's on, you know. So it, there's a reality to it because there's no, no interference from the editor or from the director. And I once asked Orson Welles, I said, what do you think is the difference between doing a scene in one shot or cutting it into many pieces? And Orson said, well, we used to say that was what separated the men from the boys. The performances in uh, the thing called Love are, are also very authentic. And, and very good. River was great, and Samantha Mathis, and Sandy Bullock, was, everybody was good. Um, I had a funny scene with situation with River because I came in one day and we had a scene, it was a long three or four page scene. And I said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this scene in one shot, that's it. So once we get it, we're done with it. He said, wait a minute, you're not gonna cover it? No. You're not gonna get close-ups or over shoulders? No. But once we just do it, that's it? You're not, that's it? That's the scene? I said, yeah. Oh, great! <laughs> and he loved it. And then every day from then on, he said, let's do it in one. Let's do it in one. And he wanted to do everything in one. I said, well, we can't do this in one, River. Got a cut. Oh, let's do it in one. And he was so good. What a great actor he was. What a beautiful guy. I miss him.
Was there some influence there, I mean, uh, from Cassavetes, who it seems like at, at, in that period, maybe the end of that period, that, that it seems like that relationship, um, is, you can feel it in some of those films, maybe Texasville specifically. He read the script of Texasville, and I remember when he read the script for me and he called me up and he said, what a life. <laughs> <laughs> and you were hesitant to do it, was that something that... Well, I was, I had to do it because it became financially rewarding yeah. to do it. But I was nervous about it, I was nervous about it. John and I became good friends starting with a time that, you know, everybody was shocked after the last picture show. A lot of people in Hollywood were shocked that I did a movie like What's Up Doc, which is diametrically opposite. But I had already done last picture show, so why not do something different? And yeah. they said to me, would you make a picture with Barbara Streisand? I said, okay. Well, what do you want to make? I said, well, I don't want to make that script. I'll do a different kind of script, like a screwball comedy. Okay. So I make the picture, and there's a screening in New York. There was a lot of sort of ritzy people there, and some snobby people and some names. And John was there with Jenna Rollins, and uh, the picture starts, and they're not laughing. They're not getting it. About 10 or 12 minutes into the picture, John says out loud, loud, I can't believe he's doing this! <laughs> Everybody laughed, and from then on, the picture played great. <laughs> so we became friends after that. Was it difficult with something like um, Noises Off where you're adapting a, a play? It al almost struck me whenever I see it as being kind of like rope in a way because there's these elaborate camera movements, but yeah. it's also a very contained uh, story. Yeah. Well, Noises Off was a big challenge. I saw it uh, on Broadway and I thought it was very funny. And I said I'd like, I'd like to make a movie and Johnny Carson's company was going to do it. And they almost bought the rights, and they didn't get the rights, Spielberg got them. And then a couple of years passed, and Frank Marshall, who'd started with me, was working with Spielberg, and I called him and said, is Stephen going to make Noises Off? No, he's not going to make Noises Off, but he, he's going to produce it. Well, I'd like to direct it. And so I came in, I had a meeting with Frank, and then I had a meeting with Stephen, and everybody said, okay, why don't you do it? And what I said was something that, because they said, how, how would you do it? I said, you got to just do the play. But it all takes place in the theater. I said, so what? Rear window takes place in an apartment. Lifeboat takes place in the lifeboat. And then I remembered something Hitchcock had told me that was very critical. I said to Hitch one time, how come you didn't, uh, you, you didn't open up Dial M for Murder? You pretty much stayed in the apartment. He says, when you have a hit play, don't open it up. Don't try to make it cinematic. Just shoot it. Of course, he meant just shoot it the way I would, meaning Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I thought, well, the thing, the way to do Noises Off is to basically just do the play, but shoot it well. And we opened it up a bit yeah. in the intermissions, and in the beginning and the end and in the intermissions, we opened it up enough. Because Hitch made the point that when you have a hit play, it's the construction that makes it a hit. So if you change the construction, you're changing the very thing you bought. So I convinced them to let me just do the play uh, and opened it up a little bit. And we had great actors and we did a lot of the things without a cut, many, many scenes without a cut. Uh, to the point where when I see it now, I screened it for some students 
I kept saying, where did we cut? Because <laughs> I'd forgotten, you know. Jesus, how do we keep this going? Of course, the other trick was, did you ever see the play? No. Well, the play ends with everybody, with the characters pulling the curtain down. Okay. And that's the end. And then they come out for their curtain calls. Well, part of the dynamic of the play, when you're sitting there, is will the actors survive the evening? <laughs> Running up and down the stairs, doors opening, closing, falling down the stairs. And, you say, God, are they going to live to the end of this movie, play? Well, that goes when you do a movie, because obviously they made the movie. So I thought, well, how can we get some of that feeling into the movie? And the way to do it was, I said, with the actors. Because if, if I tell them, we're going to do this 15 pages without a cut, and if anybody screws up, we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got nine actors not being the one, everybody not wanting to be the one who screws up. So you have a certain tension. And that worked very well for the, for the play. But we would do 30 takes sometimes if we didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Just after this period, you start working a lot more on TV. What is the experience like for you? How does it shift from, from doing a film that you know is going to be released theatrically? I didn't have any difference. Yeah. The only difference is that you have to work faster. Yeah. But I just dealt with it like I'm, it's a movie. It just happens to be a movie that's going to be seen on television. But it'll be seen on DVD or <clears throat> VHS or it'll be seen. It's not going to be read. So it's still a movie. I guess the only difference is long shots I wouldn't make quite as long. Mm. And um, I'd compromise a little bit on the, land, the distance. A little bit. Yeah. And. Um, Speed, you had to go fast. I did a movie up here in uh, Quebec City in Toronto uh, called um, Rescuers, oh. Stories of Courage. Shot it in 19 days. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. I like going fast. <coughs> I get a certain energy to it. So I had 19 days, 25 days, 24 days. Nothing more than 24 days on these films, and they were, uh, I, I had good scripts and very good casts, and I'm proud of them. I wish they were more available, and I did it one with Sidney Poitier. I'm fascinated with that one. I want to... That was fun, too. Because you shot partially in London, but just seemingly for that opening bit, mm -hmm. and it, that, the pre-credit sequence seems to move so, like, blisteringly fast, and it's almost like there's that, like, bang cut straight into the, uh, the, the title. Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I thought it was, uh, the original movie was a little dated. Yeah. So I didn't take much inspiration from that. Sidney was the producer, the co-writer, the star, and it was a sequel to a hit picture of his. So I had, you can imagine that maybe I didn't have a lot of power, but he did everything I asked him <laughs> to do. And we even rewrote it a bit when I asked him to. And I only gave him one direction through the entire 24 days, which was a little faster, Sidney. A little faster. <laughs> That's the only thing I ever said to him. And he never once said to me, is that all the fuck you can say? <laughs> he never said that. I was, didn't think he would have said it. But he never did. He just did it faster, and it was always better. I, I tend to say faster. That's okay. one of the things I do quite often. I, it's always better faster, mm -hmm. generally speaking. 
when we did Cat's Meow, Joanna Lumley was interviewed and says, what the, how did he direct you? Pedro? Well, Pedro would just, just generally say, darling, a little faster. <laughs> when we were doing What's Up Doc, we had a scene on the roof where she sings and they fall off the piano and so on. And uh, there's a long scene on the floor. It was four, four and a half pages, very exposition-y scene. And um, we ran it, and I said, would you time this? And they timed it. It was three minutes, three, three plus, a little bit more than three minutes. I said, it's way too long. And they said, Peter, it's four and a half pages. Way too long. So I said, take his glasses on the line. Don't do it after the line. Do this. I combined a lot of business so that it wasn't waiting for business and so on. I pick up the cues. You come in a little sooner here. Come in. Let's do it again. We ran. Time it. Two minutes. Now that's pretty good, but it could be it could be faster. So then I gave him some more direction, and we shot it, and it was a minute and a half. That's it. <laughs> now you know, interestingly enough, Frank Capra said something to me once years ago. I said, I noticed you paced your pictures very quickly. Even his dramas are paced quickly. He said, it's a funny thing. I don't know why, but film seems to slow things down. So if you shoot something, at, if you play it at normal speed, it'll seem slow. If you play it at a little bit faster than normal, it'll seem normal. So if you want to go fast, you really have to speed it up. So I always push, push for a little bit quicker. Well, even when the, the films are, are, are moving so quickly, it seems like, especially later in your career, the stories tended to open up a little more where they're not so contingent on very specific plot points, but more about the behavior of yeah. the characters. And I, I can't remember who compared it to Leo McCary um, about being more about the behavior. Well, it's, it is about the behavior. Yeah. I think the behavior, that's what silent movies were about. Yeah. Behavior, gestures, silent looks. That's the thing that movies have, that movies can do better than anything. Now, what is your relationship currently with, with younger filmmakers? I know someone like Noah Baumbach or Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach are producing my next picture. Is this the Rene Claire uh, <laughs> ghost, ghost no, story? No, no. It's, uh, it's called Squirrels to the Nuts. Okay. <laughs> it's a comedy, I hope. They're casting it now. We're going to do it, knock wood, in September. And then I have a ghost picture that, yeah. that Quentin Tarantino says he's going to produce. Uh, that's the, it's not Rene Claire, but it's um, it's a ghost picture. Were you influenced by uh, what was that? Ghost goes yeah, West. yeah. Well, I loved that movie when I was a kid. I saw it maybe ten times. I don't think it holds up too well now, but it's uh, it's fun. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah, Robert Donat is wonderful. I loved him. Uh, it's not like that. It's not anything like that. Okay. It's a very contemporary story about a filmmaker, kind of a Woody Allen character. I mean, Woody Allen in the sense that it's a director, producer, actor who's famous for comedies. He's had six wives and six daughters, and his most recent wife died in a plane crash about six years before the movie starts, and he's gone to hell in those six years, to where he's unemployable in Hollywood, and he's ruined his relationships everywhere. He's chopped up a projection of a universal, punched out a producer's box, 
can't get, and it starts and he's arriving in Rome, having bullshitted the Italians for six months, telling them he's got a great idea for a picture, but he has to find the locations first. So he's been scouting locations, he hasn't got any story at all. <laughs> and they say, we're not like Hollywood, we're gonna break your legs. <laughs> so that's just the beginning. And, it's a very complicated picture. It's the most complicated picture in terms of cast, because it's a huge cast, because you meet all the wives, you meet all the daughters, and there's ghosts, six ghosts. And uh, I think there's six ghosts, and there was a number of ghosts. And um, it all plays in about four or five days, and it plays in four different countries, four or five different countries. It, move, it just moves constantly, it's constantly moving. I wanted to see if I could do a movie where nobody never stops. <laughs> And there's a lot of characters, so it's a very ambitious picture. It's very personal. I don't, it's not about me specifically, but it uh, could have been. Okay. It's not about anybody I know. It's just a lot of experience I've had. And it was written for certain people in mind. I wrote it for John. Oh, okay. Cassavetes, and he read it and loved it and wanted to do it, but he was too ill, and I never did get the script right before he died. But he said to me, one of the last things he says, you better make that ghost picture, because I'll be there. <laughs> so I'm hoping to make it so I can make sure he's there. I, I really like that you mentioned how much, uh, how the excuse is location shooting, because so many of your films seem to convey a very strong sense of the place that they, they're being shot in. Well, I think it's very, very important that the place where something, takes, something is set is a character in the picture. And, um, and I don't mean having atmospheric shots of location with interesting faces that have nothing to do with the leading characters, which some directors do. They, they sort of do what uh, Robert Graves calls kindling. <laughs> they kindle the location. So you've got, Kazan does this, you'll see numerous shots of interesting faces, interesting locations. But then it has nothing to do with the characters. That's sort of like a pre-credit sequence. And then you get into the story and you don't know where you are. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to mention other directors. Because <laughs> this number of directors have very little sense of the place. And I think it's an important thing. I think it's a character in the piece, the place. So, but I think it's important to have the actors, the, the characters, lead you into the place, not to have it separately told to you. Houston does that too. Yeah. He'll show you the place, but then once you get started with the character, you don't know where you are anymore. What is your experience like with, with the commentary tracks you record as a kind of continuation of maybe... You mean the ones I do for my own films? No, for other, other people's songs. I, I, they pay me to do that. Yeah. So I go in and I say, okay, run the picture, and they run the picture, they have the mics on, and I talk. Yeah. I never prepare, and I never hear it again afterwards. Okay. People say to me, gee, you did a great one on Citizen Kane. Really? I never heard it. <laughs> I haven't, I never listened to them. It's too boring to listen to them. But I, hopefully it's not boring for the people. Have you listened to like other people's commentary tracks? No. Is that something you've ever experienced? No, no. <laughs> a lot of people share that opinion, though, that it takes away from what they're, why they're watching in the first place. Well, I think it's crazy to watch the, commentary, to watch it with the commentary track before you've seen the picture. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know a couple of people who do that. Oh, really? Yeah, they look at it that way first, but I, I wouldn't do that. But it's okay if you want to 
see it once and then see it with the director. I, I take the image that I'm sitting in a living room with these people, with a bunch of people, and I'm talking about the picture. Mm -hmm. Unbuttoned. Hmm. How have you felt about the blog that you've been? Well, it's like having a damn column every, every <laughs> week. It's, 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 uh, write another blog. It's not so much it's okay. sweet smell of success, less glamorous. <laughs> it's less glamorous than sweet smell of success. It's not a good movie. Great dialogue. What is this thing, Integrity? A pocket full of dynamite. <laughs> I love that movie. It was written by Clifford Odets. Oh, yeah. The script was, the final draft was written by Clifford Odets. Tony Curtis told me Clifford wrote the whole thing in the, in the back of a truck in, in New York, in Times Square, sitting in the, with an overcoat and an old typewriter. The reason I'm fond of Clifford is I knew him. First thing I ever directed was a play he wrote called The Big Knife. Okay. He's a great writer. Nobody's ever heard of him now. He was the premier American writer in the 30s. <clears throat> but as Gore Vidal says, this is the United States of amnesia. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mention that because that is kind of what you set out to do, is to offer more attention to, to, to artists that hadn't received it through your, your interviews especially. Yeah. Um, but now it seems like everything's readily available. Have you noticed much of a shift, or do you still think that there are there are people who deserve more attention than they get. Oh, I think there are still people who deserve more attention than they get, you know. Um, I think the general level of film culture is very low in the United States. It's, I think it's better here. Oh, okay. Um, I've had a bunch of interviews today and they were all very intelligent. Younger kids, younger people I've been teaching for a year or so and Kids don't have any idea about older pictures. Even though they're available. Even though they're available, yeah. yeah. They don't want to see, they don't want to see black and white, they don't want to see old pictures, they're stupid. It's just ignorant. I was talking to a girl one time, and um, she had an accent, and I mentioned some picture, and she said, oh yes, that's with Irene Dunn and Clary Grant. I said, how do you know that? She said, well, I'm European. <laughs> You know, Renoir said a great thing once to me. He said, when you gather around you people to make a picture, you do, should not gather around you associates or collaborators, but rather conspirators. <laughs> <laughs> there should be always an element of conspiracy to make your picture. It shouldn't be legal. Yeah. <laughs> there should be something slightly illegal about it. Have you noticed a difference in how your films are received uh, abroad versus in America? Well, I think they take you more seriously in Europe. Uh, you know, I remember, uh, I remember when St. Jack opened, um, we showed it at the Venice Film Festival and it was a big success. We won the Critics Prize, which hadn't been given yeah. at all for seven years, not since Clockwork Orange, a picture I hated, but anyway. <laughs> uh, and. Um, Suddenly, there were articles in France, Bogdanovich, the misunderstood. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they went back and looked at all my pictures and said, we didn't understand this guy. <laughs> now we understand it. Well, I'm wondering if it's the marketing, because I, I, I feel like with so many of the films, you can always point to at least one thing that seems baffling now, that that would be the, the method it was chosen to be marketed. I have, had, I have suffered badly with bad distribution, you know. 
and even with a um, thing called love, uh, it just not well, being they just completely yeah, did not just they literally didn't distribute it right. No, like they didn't. They tried it out in the south, and it didn't do much. So they said they don't want it. It's weird. We had a screening at the Montreal Film Festival, yeah. and I went there, and everybody loved the picture. They thought it was going to be a big hit, and it was well received in in Vienna too. We went to the Vienna Film Festival, but then when River died, I think just. Uh, the impetus went out of it. They didn't get, they didn't, that happens. What shifted in the director's cut for that? Very little. I added five minutes back, but it's all the way through, little things here and there, behavior mainly. Yeah. And some esoteric things that River would say. Um, but it's, a, it's only five minutes, but it's huge difference. As an example, one of the things I put back was, have you seen the director's cut? Yeah. Well, you remember when she comes to that hotel at the beginning, and she opens the door and the music yeah. plays YMCA. And then in the original version, she just closed the door and that was the end of the scene. But I added back the part where she unpacks yeah. and you see what she's got in her suitcase. And you see this Robert Graves books and things about women and poetry and so on. and just you get to know her better and just the very fact that you spend a minute alone with her really alone with her gives you a more more interest in her as a character again it's behavior you see how she behaves with the money and how she doesn't but just the very fact that you spend a minute alone with her makes her much more interesting much more important character Sandra Bullock's especially in that it really jumps off the the screen yeah, she got the job in Speed because of that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because the director of Speed saw the thing called Love and hired her off of that picture to do Speed. So that's one definite positive reaction immediately? That was a positive reaction, yeah. Well, have you had it? Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay, sure. It was outstanding. <laughs>